thank you, Sonny Rollins. And without anything more from me, I want to move to cover to cover with our own Jennifer Stone. Today is um, January the 1st, 2008. Oh, how I do miss my little bit of... uh, a little bit of um, Bertolt Brecht. You know, it gets me going every week because it reminds me that we're <laughs> we're in a rerun of the Weimar Republic, you know, Berlin between the wars. Of course, that was just a little rehearsal, just a little foreshadowing what we've got now. That's an opera, baby, you know. I got through the holidays by the skin of my teeth, like... Like some of you, I guess. Uh, It wasn't too bad, you know, just a few second-hand traumas. No direct hits. (laughs) I watched a few few mild crack-ups. It's nice getting older, you know. Uh, I watched those who went off the rails or went around the bend, and I thought to myself, they deserve no sympathy which, of course, is why they should get some. Uh, It's always the people who cause us the headaches, you know. Uh, I guess if they're hollering, I guess they need some comfort. Uh, I just can't take it much anymore. I tend to hide out. This year was definitely one of those crawl under the electric blanket and turn it up to nine, yes. (laughs) I kept telling myself late last night that We were going to begin again, yes, 2008. We're all present and accounted for. It's what Gertrude Stein called the continuing present, yes. The eternal present, circles, circles, the cycles. Gertrude Stein said the world is round, so round and round we go, go with the flow. You can drown at your leisure, at least... In New Orleans, last night I listened to the best bands on the planet. I did that until about uh, maybe midnight, and then I checked out the Tibetan Book of the Dead till 3 a.m. In the true dark night of the soul, it is always 3 o'clock in the morning, day after day after day. I stole that from F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's got this wonderful essay called The Crack Up. (laughs) Poor guy. Took me years to figure out that he wasn't really writing about a nervous breakdown. He was writing about um, alcoholic brain syndrome. Poor guy. Uh, Anyway, you may have noticed this year, as every year, history is happening again, as always and forever. Till memory is no more, the daughter of Pakistan is slain, I remember, 20 years ago. When she became the prime minister, uh, she was so beautiful, I thought she was a movie star, right? (laughs) A dynasty. uh, A dynasty is so dramatic. It's not democratic, exactly, but we seem to be having some in our country now. Uh, I think of Benazir Bhutto as what is it? A, a kind of a kind of a parallel to Queen Elizabeth the First in England. Uh, 
the way she dominates or dominated those feudal lords, the warlords, um, until, of course, she didn't. And now that poor boy, only 19, but personalities are perhaps beside the point. Uh, I think today I will stick to personalities because I'm interested in the new cast. we got a new cast, folks. Beginning again, it's... Uh, the first of the year, a uh, happy new year in case that's the sort of thing you go for. And I was thinking we should probably spend 10 minutes on electoral politics. <laughs> Ralph, Ralph Nader has come out for John Edwards. Oh, give me a break. Anyway, I was just thinking that the, the new cast is pretty interesting. Uh, they are going to create our lives uh, for the next, what is it, next decade, if not more than that, uh, I think it might be worth spending just a few minutes looking at Barack Obama. I, uh, of course, most people know me. I'm just one of Hillary's Hellcats, but that's old news. Uh, it may be Barack Obama. We shall see. I made a little file uh Truth is that I haven't read his first two books. Now, that's not bad, seeing as uh, he's only, what, 46. He's got two books out. Uh, I just thought I could give you a few notes on where he's coming from. Where is Barack Obama coming from? Here we go. Here's one profile in the New Yorker last May. Believe it or not, last May the 7th, 2007, by Larissa... McFarquhar. Larissa McFarquhar is a staff writer for the New Yorker, and that's all I know about her. It's not really a very, what do you call it, uh, very sexy essay. She calls him a conciliator. This seems to be the voice of reason, this little profile. Uh, I, I find that Barack is, what's the word, uh, much more of a mystery man than Hillary is a mystery woman. People keep saying they don't know who she really is. I don't think it could be more obvious. But Barack is something different now. She's Hillary's 60. He's 46. I figure it's his turn next time. But the rule here at KPFA is that we never advocate. Oh, oh, oh get a load of that. <laughs> I was told the other day that I was never to advocate anything. Anyway, all I'm doing here is giving you background. Uh, this profile starts out with a long description of Barack Obama talking to some Illinois farmers and how he's really close to the ground, you know, and how he refers constantly to the senior senator in Illinois, Richard Durbin, and how he's good with the minutia, that is, the little things, all the problems of his constituents. Uh, and she goes on at great length about that and how he always talks about us, what we need, not them. He sticks to the us. He's not into blaming. This is a good thing. Uh, he uses the passive voice, she says, uh, he talks about things that are amiss with us rather than wrongs that have been done to us by them. Anyway, 
At some point in this profile, she talks about uh, Obama's health care forums. Now, uh, first she contrasts his uh, plans to fix the health care mess. She compares him with Hillary Clinton and then goes on to talk about uh, Obama's tranquility, how relaxed he is. Um, he doesn't express sympathy for sickness or scorn for bureaucracy or outrage at unfairness. Obama says that the system is broken and needs to be fixed, but conveys no particular urgency. Now, this mode of his is often called professorial. Uh, Obama himself likens his forums to the constitutional law classes that he taught at the University of Chicago. Uh, now, prof- professorial implies that he seems cerebral or didactic, and he doesn't. Despite the criticism he has received for being all inspiration and no policy, he has so far stuck to what appears to be an instinct that white papers belong on websites, not in speeches. Anyway, um, she feels, the author here, she quotes, wait a minute, she quotes a friend of his, a private investor called George Haywood, and uh, George has a lot to say about Obama. He says that Obama does not have the handicap that a lot of smart people have, which is that they come across as, quote, you're not smart enough to talk to me. Uh, he goes on to say, Adlai Stevenson had that. Adlai Stevenson was another Illinois guy. Uh, Stevenson came across as an egghead. It put people off. Barack is the opposite. Probably one of the reasons for this is that Obama seems not to attach much value to cleverness as such. Okay, that rings a bell in my head. I'm uh, one of those, uh, well, I'm a member of the chattering classes, and I always like to give points for cleverness. I think I should outgrow that, but maybe it's too late. Uh, anyway, his friends say that even in law school, Barack was not much interested in academic jousting and uh, going for sheer cleverness. Um Actually, the author of this article in The New Yorker goes on to say that his detachment, his calm, especially in these small venues when he's talking to the locals, is less professorial than medical. I like that. It's like that of a doctor who, by listening to a patient's story without an emotional reaction, reassures the patient that the symptoms are familiar to him. It is also doctorly in the sense that Obama thinks that the body politic uh, is a whole, uh, doesn't come in pieces. If you present a problem as something uh, that they have perpetrated on us, then whipping up outrage is natural enough. But if you take unity seriously, as Barack Obama does, then outrage does not make sense. Not any more than it would make sense for a doctor to express outrage that a patient's kidney is causing pain in his back. There's also, of course, a racial aspect to this. 
Haywood, that's that George Haywood, his friend again, is quoted. He says, if you're a black male, you don't have to try hard to impress people with your aggression. <laughs> he goes on to say, there was a period when black politicians started to be successful. It was understood that if you wanted to be mainstream, you better have gray hair. And he goes on to describe a number of gray-haired black politicians, David uh, Dinkins, Mayor Bradley in L.A., Doug Wilder, and so on, so on, says you better look safe and you better not look angry if you want to be popular with the broad white electorate. And this quote from uh, this pal of Barack's goes on. He says, I don't think Barack made a conscious decision to come across this way. It's a happy accident. Some of the people who've seen his speech at the Democratic Convention uh, might be disappointed, but the mainstream is not ready for a fire-breathing black man. Well, that's just his opinion. Ho, ho. Anyway, the author of the article goes on to say that it seems likely that consciously or not, Obama has learned from these examples and knows that the election of a President Obama wouldn't mean a revolution in race relations. Any more than women prime ministers were a sign of flourishing feminism in South Asia. <laughs> Tell me about it. Obviously, this article was written long before the recent assassination. Uh, things are not what they seem, folks. Anyway, uh, Obama's calm is also a matter of temperament. The first thing almost everybody who knows Obama says about him is how extremely comfortable he is with himself. He's almost freakishly self-possessed and centered. That's a quote from one of his professors at the Harvard Law School. It's a guy who's now a dean at Berkeley named Christopher Edley Jr. Anyway... He says there's something, yes, there is something freakish about Obama's self-possession, says the author of the article. It's conspicuous and draws attention to itself, like the unnatural stillness of someone able to lower his blood pressure at will. He does not strive for an everyman quality. He is relaxed, but never chummy. <laughs> yes. What is the great Shakespeare line? Yes. Uh, Be thou familiar, but by no means... Um, Popular? What is the other rest of the line? I've forgotten my my uh, Polonius line. Be thou familiar, but by no means. Oh, I've lost it. There you see a senior moment. Anyway, the gist of this description, the last uh, line is that Obama comes across as gracious rather than familiar. That's good. Gracious rather than familiar. Ah. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, he gets some of this from, oh, a grandfather. The grandfather from Kenya was a cook in the British Army. Ah, ha, ha, I smell a Brit. Anyway, the article goes on to say, His surface is so smooth, his movements so easy and fluid, his voice so consistent and well-pitched, that he can seem, seem like an actor playing a politician. Too implausibly effortless to be doing it for real. Obama has become known for his open-necked shirts. He may do to the tie what John Kennedy did to the hat. 
<laughs> that is, get rid of it yet. But he never looks casual. Ah. Uh, <laughs> a Harvard political scientist is now quoted. Uh, he says that uh, Gore and Bush had jokey qualities and acted like uh, smart asses. You know, all three politicians. Uh, let's see. Uh, try, yes, but he said uh, Obama is never goofy. He's not a sober size, uh, but he's not goofy. What's strange about this is that the serene man his friends describe could not be more different from the person Obama himself describes in his memoir. It's the first book, Dreams from My Father. In that book, the young Obama is confused and angry, struggling to figure out who he is, often high, wary of both white condescension and black rage, never trusting himself, always suspicious that his beliefs are just disguised egotism, his emotions just symptoms of his peculiar racial lot. Of course, the book is all about his emergence from this state of mind. It's a traditional tale of uh, self-finding, which ends traditionally with a wedding in which his confusions are resolved. Uh, but the contrast between Obama of the book and the Obama visible to the world is nonetheless so extreme as to be striking. Okay, here's another friend quoted here. A friend from Harvard and now a professor there. He says that Obama was grounded, comfortable in his own skin, knew who he was, where he came from, and why he believed things. This professor goes on to say, when I read his book, I was surprised. The confusion and the anger that he described, well, maybe they were there below the surface, but they were not manifest at all. I told her. <laughs> He's a closet Brit. Anyway, asked about this, Obama says, you know, what puzzles me is why people are puzzled by that. This angry character lasts from the time I was 15 to the time I was 21 or so. I guess my explanation is I was an adolescent male with a lot of hormones and an admittedly complicated upbringing. But that wasn't my natural temperament. The book doesn't describe my entire life. I could have written an entirely different book about the joys of basketball or what it's like to body surf as the sun's going down on a sandy beach. <laughs> Actually, I've read a lot of things um, by and about Obama, which shows that he has quite a literary streak. Um, he's um, very good at images. He could definitely be a poet. Uh, anyway, this article goes on to say a lot more things. Uh, let's see. I must tell you again, the author of this article, in case you want to look it up. Her name is Larissa McFarquhar. And she wrote a profile of Obama back in May last year. And it was the first spin. There have been many spins since. Uh, check it out. Uh, basically, it tells us much more than we need to know, at least more than I needed to know. Uh, I think we tend to do this. What is that? Psychoanalyze or... Uh, dig around in the personality and character uh, of politicians. I guess it's the soap opera side of things. Uh, I have a whole 
essay somewhere on the uses of a monarchy, you know, because it takes a lifetime to figure out one person. Anyway, by the time we got somebody figured out, they've already uh, caused the damage and left office. Anyway, uh, he does write about uh, his druggy past. That's important. He probably realized that revealing the drug use uh, was the best way to diffuse that issue for the future. Uh, the author here goes on to say that he's a master storyteller. A lot of people say that about him. And, uh, yes, that's very successful technique when you're talking to folks in a small group. Uh, it's likely he also knows that the typical story of the political candidate, that is, the doing well in school and doing well in a profession and relishing the good life and, you know, the wife, the nice house, the basketball, the whatever, uh, is not inspiring stuff. You know, you have to have some drama. When he was working as a community organizer in Chicago, Obama spoke to a number of black ministers. He tried to persuade them to ally themselves uh, with his organization. And in the course of these conversations, he discovered that they had something in common. And that is, yes, that they all had, they all had these flaws, these, uh, what would you call it, uh, tragic flaws like in Greek tragedies. They all had some kind of addiction or problem which they overcame. I call this the to hell and back syndrome. Uh, hopefully, uh, a po politician can get this over with before he comes to office, unfortunately, like Bill Clinton didn't. Yes, he really messed up in office. He should have got over that. I think his good wife thought he had. She thought that being in the White House would be like being in jail, but it didn't work that way with Bill. Anyway, he talks about the periods of doubt, the uh, periods, uh, he says he, he studied these uh, ministers, and uh, they all seemed to have struck bottom and had their pride shattered and then resurrected themselves, you know, and did something larger. I was thinking the other day a friend of mine said that feminism had done something like that for certain women we knew, given us, uh, given us a religion, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, the personal fall and subsequent redemption gives them authority or confidence. Uh, then they can go out and preach the good news. Uh, a woman friend of Obama's from law school uh, remembers Barack used to say that one of his favorite sayings of the civil rights movement was, quote, if you cannot bear the cross, you can't wear the crown. You like that? I like that. If you cannot bear the cross, you can't wear the crown. And the next section of this article goes into detail about the parents and the heritage of Barack Obama. His mom is that girl from Kansas, you know. <laughs> from Oz, and his father is from Kenya, and his grandparents are fascinating. Wow. Uh, he says that lack of imagination, right, could choke your dreams. Uh, anyway, the dad managed to get out to California, then to Seattle, then to Hawaii, Oh, boy. Uh, I wish I had time to read you this entire section. Uh, 
it seems that Obama kind of turned it all around, and they went west, and he turned around and went back towards the east. Uh, his grandparents had the real struggle. His mother, his mother Anne, married first a man from Kenya, his father, and then when that man left, a man from Indonesia. And when that second marriage fell apart, she briefly returned home to Hawaii, started a master's in anthropology, left again for Indonesia. Uh, she did in Indonesian uh, field work. Let's see. At that point, this was something that startled me. His mother gave Obama, then 13 years old, a choice whether to come with her or stay behind at his school in Hawaii, and he chose to stay, okay? Mom went off to do field work, and he stayed where he was in Hawaii. Now, that is an independent young man, 13. Uh, anyway, Obama's father is a complicated story expelled from school, got scholarships to go to college in America, had so many families, left pregnant wife and son to study econometrics at the University of Hawaii, where he met Anne, that's the mother of Barack. He married her, had another child, yes, that's Barack. Left that second family to return to Kenya to work for the government, where he married another American woman and had two more children. <laughs> this third family disintegrated and because he was unwilling to accept the unfairness of Kenya's persistent tribalism so did um, his government position yes it disintegrated right uh, he got kicked out of both marriage and job angry and penniless he started to drink okay Obama seems to have judged his parents what was it George Bernard Shaw said we begin by loving our parents then we judge them. Seldom, if ever, do we forgive them. He describes them as innocent. Uh, I think he means naive. Um, Obama writes in his book, What strikes me most when I think about the story of my family is a running strain of innocence, an innocence that seems unimaginable even by the measures of childhood. Innocence for him is not a good quality or even a redeeming excuse. It is not the opposite of guilt. It is the opposite of wisdom. Okay, in Obama's description of his maternal grandfather, there is love but also contempt. His was an American character, he writes. Typical of men of his generation, the men who embraced the notion of freedom and individualism and the open road without always knowing its price. He writes, men who were both dangerous and promising precisely because of their fundamental innocence. These men were prone in the end to disappointment. Oh, that takes some study. I don't know. He's 46. I guess he's getting there. I think that innocence is of the spirit of the heart. Uh, I think what he's describing is naivete, which is of the mind. Uh, uh, it's an error in thinking. Anyway, he goes on uh, to write a great deal about, let's call it his, uh, his analysis, his judgment um, of his family. He writes, in a land where fatalism remained a necessary tool for enduring hardship, uh, 
His mother was a lonely witness for secular humanism, a soldier for the New Deal, for the Peace Corps, for position paper liberalism. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this guy may be too heavy. This guy may be entirely too heavy. Uh, there's another quote that he has that worries me a great deal. Uh, comes from his aunt. If everyone is family, no one is family. Anyway, I wish I had time to read you the end of this uh, article because it pretty much describes, well, it projects uh, what the author thinks Obama will be like should he wind up in the White House. And she talks basically about uh, his identification with Abraham Lincoln and uh, his identification with Harold Washington. You remember good old Harold Washington, uh, <laughs> mayor of Chicago when Obama first moved there. The fact is that uh, Washington was a great star, uh, but no sooner did he die than things fell apart. And Obama writes, the entire of black politics had centered around the one man, that man radiated like a sun. Uh, this proved to him that charisma can be misleading and that revolutions are illusory, that real change is slow. Uh, anyway, the conclusion of this author is that Obama stands on the ground. If he thought his winning would take a revolution, he wouldn't have run. Anyway, I recommend this article. Check it out in the New Yorker. Uh, oh, that's right. I don't recommend anything. <laughs> I find interesting. The article in the New Yorker of May the 7th, 2007, all about Barack Obama, the why of it, the innards of his personality. And then... We will have an election, and next week at this time, I will be back on the air, and maybe we'll draw some conclusions. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In the Name of Love, the sixth annual musical tribute honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. will be held Sunday, January 20th, at the Oakland Scottish Rite Center at 7.30 p.m., Benefiting Rhythmic Concepts Music Education Programs in Oakland Elementary Schools. Performers will include Linda Tillery and the Cultural Heritage Choir, Rhiannon, Terrence Kelly, Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, and more. For tickets, visit mlktribute.com or call 800-838-3006. We hope to see you there. You're listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno. It's time for Free Speech Radio News. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, New Year's Day, 2008. The North American Free Trade Agreement comes into full effect today with the cancellation of all remaining tariffs and so-called trade barriers protecting Mexican agricultural products. 
The trade deal, which began to come into force on the 1st of January 1994, has been largely blamed for the ongoing crisis in the Mexican countryside, the growing disparity between rich and poor, and the unprecedented rate of migration of Mexicans towards the United States. Join us today as we take a look at the intersection of culture, food, migration, and trade. I'm Ara Bogado. Stay with us. has been said about the effects of NAFTA on corn, the foundation of the Mexican diet, the staple crop of the countryside, and the symbol of Mesoamerican identity. In this exclusive FSRN documentary, Shannon Young and Vladimir Flores take us to Oaxaca, Mexico for Corn at the Crossroads, Free Trade, Migration, and Modified Genes in the Cradle of Maize. Mexico, corn is much more than a simple source of calories for the human body. It represents life itself. The creation myth of Mesoamerican culture, the Popol Vuh, tells of how the gods struggled to make thinking, feeling human beings. After two failed attempts with mud and wood, the gods finally succeeded when they crafted the first people from the dough and kernels of white and yellow corn. Mesoamerican cultures regard the plant as sacred, and many indigenous small farmers, or campesinos, pay their respects with rites and customs from the sowing of the seeds until well after the harvest. This Zapotec farmer from Oaxaca's Sierra Juarez describes a few of the customs that have endured since before the time of the Spanish invasion. One is planted for the little animal, one for the family, one for the townspeople, and one for the festival. It was in this way that the agricultural education returned to the heart of the family. Why? Because those who came here destroyed the schools where the lessons of how to attend to the maize were given. Maize is sacred. You can't sweep maize with a broom because it said that if you sweep maize, maize will abandon you. You can neither put a flame to the cob. You have to be careful. Why? Because it's life. It's the baby of the house, as we say in our language. With so much love given to maize, sometimes it can seem to one as exaggerated. But it's not so. It's the way a man acts when one knows that it's the food which gives him life. The strong connection between humans and maize in Oaxaca is the legacy of millennia of coexistence. It was here that corn was first domesticated from its wild ancestor more than 7,000 years ago. Maize cannot grow without human help, and it's impossible to imagine humans here growing without maize. One can find corn in nearly all of its many forms in Oaxaca's bustling central market. Tortillas and tamales, the tejate drink, even non-edible products like handcrafts from corn husks or necklaces with lacquered seeds. Corn is the main staple crop in Mexico. Every part of the plant has a use, from the kernels to the leaves. 
Farm animals consume what humans can't, and even the roots themselves play a role in the maintenance of soil ecology. Maize is an integral part of the larger system of regional biodiversity and a cornerstone of the network between humans, food, and the land. Most of the arable land in Oaxaca is owned by communities, not individuals. Land redistribution was the central demand of Mexican revolutionary hero Emiliano Zapata. The agrarian reform he advocated made it into the Constitution as Article 27. In practice, it transferred ownership of large plantations or haciendas to those who worked the land. It also protected the system of communal land ownership in many rural communities. In January of 1992, then-President Carlos Salinas de Gortari announced reforms to the Mexican Constitution as part of negotiations for what later became the North American Free Trade Agreement. Luego de muchos años de crisis en el campo, alentamos una nueva reforma agraria de los propios campesinos. After many years of crisis in the countryside, we have brought forth a new agrarian reform from the very campesinos, made for and by them. The change to Article 27 of the Constitution will give security and freedom to the campesinos to decide for themselves what they want to do with their land. Second, it will provide more resources to stimulate production and improve campesino livelihood. We will soon see the Mexican countryside emerge vigorous and renewed. Pronto veremos al campo mexicano emerger vigoroso y renovado. Critics of the reform said it turned land into just another commodity and buried the fundamental gain of the Mexican Revolution. The first phase of NAFTA took effect on January 1st of 1994. During New Year's celebrations with fireworks, music and parties, an indigenous rebel army mobilized to take over five key towns in the southern state of Chiapas. The date chosen for the armed uprising was no coincidence. The Zapatista Army of National Liberation, or EZLN, called NAFTA a death sentence. Soon after the start of their uprising, the EZLN took over large land holdings in Chiapas and redistributed them to landless campesinos. Comandante Kelly, one of the military leaders of the EZLN, speaking about the Zapatistas' so-called revolutionary agrarian law. Gracias a esta... Thanks to this revolutionary recuperation of land and territory, thousands of Zapatista and non-Zapatista families exist where, before 1994, they had been stripped of their lands, of their lives, and of their autonomy. Today, these people and these families have land to work, land for building community, land for a better future for indigenous, campesino, and rural people. The land and territory are more than sources of work and food. They are also culture, community, history, ancestors, dreams, future, life and mother. Ancestros, sueños, futuro, vida y madre. Indigenous communities in Mexico administer land as a commonwealth. Decisions about land use are subject to debate within the collective governance structures known as popular assemblies. But the reforms to Article 27 turned communal land into a collection of individual pieces of private real estate that can be rented or sold. More than 15 years after Salinas de Gortari promised the reforms would renew and invigorate the Mexican countryside, current President Felipe Calderón is advising small farmers to look for other forms of income, like in this speech given in late November to campesinos in the state of Jalisco. 
Queremos que tengan ingreso distinto. We want you to have an income different from primary agricultural work. We want you to have a different source of income by opening a grocery store, a carpentry or sewing workshop, or a tortilla store. We want you to have tourism projects. We want the beauty of the land where you live to be known by Mexico and the world, and for you to all be technically prepared to give the people the services that they need, to maintain, for example, bathrooms and service facilities in good conditions, because this is what tourists really appreciate. NAFTA has put Mexican campesinos into direct competition with U.S. agribusiness in the agrarian equivalent of a race between a Porsche and a donkey cart. U.S. subsidized corn has been dumped onto the Mexican market at prices that undercut the cost of production for small farmers, thereby creating enormous financial pressure to find work elsewhere. Mexico now ranks as the world's top exporter of migrant labor. This student activist from Chiapas explains the rationale many young people have for abandoning the countryside. Most of the young people are in the United States because their parents can no longer support them, since all of the products from the countryside no longer have a good price. So, all the young campesinos, instead of studying, say, I'm going north because I can't make it here anymore. Then they emigrate northwards. Sergio Rodriguez Lascano, editor of the pro-Zapatista magazine Rebeldia, says the reform to Article 27 ended up making the countryside dependent upon migration and remittances. The idea behind that reform was to generate a spatial readjustment for capital with the following characteristics to bring about a new process of separating producers from the means of production, thereby generating a labor surplus to be channeled toward migration to the United States, fracturing the old social fabric. In return, what does these workers produce? The second most important source of revenue in the form of remittances, $24 billion last year, and the development of an internal market, because without those remittances, it will be impossible to maintain the Mexican countryside. The migration stream has virtually emptied rural towns of working-age men. Stricter enforcement at the U.S.-Mexico border has made clandestine crossing very risky and expensive. As a result, immigration has become more of a one-way trip. This has had a profound impact on the social fabric of Mexico's rural communities, Wives are separated from their husbands, children grow up without their fathers, and parents die without saying goodbye to their sons. The social structure, the social fabric is incredibly important, actually indispensable to retain the biological fabric of the planet. Dr. Ignacio Chapella is a microbial ecologist and professor at the University of California at Berkeley. The impact of migration and the breakup of these communities and their, their social structures is uh, so damaging, not only from the social point of view, even if I was not interested in people. I would say that for the sake of the biological diversity, we're really messing up the, um, the system of support of that diversity by breaking down that social fabric. Dr. Chapella is perhaps best known for an article he published with David Quist in the prestigious peer-reviewed scientific journal, Nature. 
The two researchers found evidence in 2001 that genetically engineered traits had mixed with or contaminated land races of native corn in the Sierra Juarez and Oaxaca's northern mountains. This, despite an official moratorium on the cultivation of GE crops within Mexico. Detractors linked to the biotechnology industry created enough pressure to have the paper withdrawn on a technicality. But the article's central thesis, that lab-modified genes had mixed with native corn in its center of origin, has been confirmed with studies by Mexican public institutions as well as by campesino groups that have sent samples for testing. One such group is the Union of Organizations of the Sierra Juarez of Oaxaca, or UNOSHO. UNOSHO member Baldemero Mendoza says that in 2005, samples were already showing evidence of transgenic traits stacked on top of each other. In the Sierra Juarez, transgenic contamination from three different proteins were found. Corn classified as an insecticide, insecticide corn for animal consumption only, and transgenic corn with an herbicide resistance. And unfortunately, in Gelatao, we found a sample that had all three characteristics. This leaves us with the understanding that transgenic contamination has been happening for many years, and not since public institutions confirmed the contamination in the Sierra Juarez. Farmers have for millennia crossbred maize varieties in order to enhance desired traits. Genetic engineering, however, can only happen in a laboratory. The process of using a gene gun to shoot a sequence of code into the DNA of a host organism can result in the combination of genetic information from entirely different biological kingdoms. For example, BT corn contains genetic information from a bacterium, a mix that would not be possible in nature. This perceived tampering with the natural order has raised stiff opposition from some members of Oaxaca's religious community. Mercedes Garcia Lara is a Catholic nun who often travels in rural areas and has collected corn samples for genetic testing. We took samples in three regions: in the central valleys, in the Sierra Sur, and in the Mixteca. And in the three regions, the maize came out contaminated with different genes. The most worrisome was the Starlink, which we know is not for human consumption, whose presence was unknown, and we don't know who is eating it. BT corn is one of two types of GE corn on the market. It expresses an insecticide trait found in a soil-dwelling bacteria. Some types of BT corn are for animal consumption only. The other form of GE corn is engineered to have a resistance to herbicides like Roundup. Roundup is a weed killer manufactured by Monsanto, which is also the world's leading producer of genetically modified seeds. The other companies that hold patent rights to most of the world's biotech seeds are Dow, Dupont, Novartis, and Bayer. This concentration of seed ownership has been one of several issues fueling the worldwide controversy over GE agriculture. Arely Carrion is with Greenpeace Mexico. This constant invasion of a technology that is patented, that is owned by a company, is a growing process of privatization of seeds and also of control of the production of the food. And the one that controls food controls politics and and controls liberties. Uh, and this is the freedom to plant, the freedom to harvest, the freedom of, of the ownership of their own seeds. Farmers have always saved seeds from their harvest to plant the following season. But farmers who want to use biotech seeds must pay a licensing fee to plant them. 
If patented genes appear in a crop without a license, even if by consequence of cross-pollination, the patent holder can sue the owner of the field. Campaigners warn these intellectual property lawsuits could start to pop up in Mexico if the government loosens restrictions on GMO cultivation. The best way of avoiding having private corporations monopolizing the intellectual property of the genes is to make the information public. Jean-Philippe Villalcalzada is a developmental geneticist at Mexico's National Laboratory of Genomics for Biodiversity. The publicly funded laboratory last year concluded a project to sequence the genome of Mexican popcorn and plans to do the same with other key domestic crops. The idea is to basically protect nationally the rights of genes that would be important for Mexican maize and make the whole information public later, which allows other nations to use the information freely and use it for agronomical improvement purposes. Listening to an FSRN exclusive documentary, Corn at the Crossroads: Free Trade, Migration, and Modified Genes in the Cradle of Maize, produced by Shannon Young and Vladimir Flores. Stay tuned. Technology has been used for pharmaceutical purposes without much controversy. For example, the production of insulin for diabetes patients is faster and cheaper thanks to biotechnology. But its application for agricultural purposes has provoked an intense international debate. Opponents also say genetically engineered crops were not sufficiently tested to prove they pose no threat to human health, but rather were approved by officials at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration amidst allegations of influence peddling. The European Union, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and China have approached the technology with caution, but the U.S. position that GE crops pose no significant threat has been influential in the crafting of legislation in developing countries with close trade ties to the U.S. Dr. Viel Calzada describes the criteria Mexico's National Genomics Laboratory uses when deciding between the two strategies of traditional breeding and genetic engineering. The first criteria. Has now become public opinion. When it comes to modifying crops like maize for human consumption, one has become quite cautious. There is also worry in in the public opinion and in the political sector that genetic engineering of maize might affect the native maize varieties that are in Mexico by changing their genetic constitution through natural crossing in the fields. The rest of the criteria have to do with the yeast that a crop, in this case maize, has to be transformed. 
not all varieties are easy to be transformed. And therefore, one has to consider in which genetic background the gene has to be inserted. And thirdly, it has to do also with how important it is to develop a technology in a short time frame or if one can wait and have many years uh, being invested on a more complex combination of traits. At this time, genetic engineering allows you to basically insert one gene at a time, and we cannot control the location where the gene will be inserted. If an improvement requires a combination of genes being present within a plant, one has to consider traditional improvement. Mexico issued a moratorium on the cultivation of GE crops in 1998, but partially lifted the ban in 2005 with the approval of the National Biosecurity Law, which permits limited commercialization of transgenics. A group of large producers in northern Mexico who want to plant GE crops have organized to pressure the government to loosen biosecurity restrictions. They say farmers hit hard by the crisis in the Mexican countryside should have the option of turning to biotech crops without having to navigate the bureaucracy to get a planting permit. These producers are optimistic that GE seeds can help to improve crop yields and make their operations more competitive. Back in the cornfields of Oaxaca, resistance to transgenic crops remains strong. Aldo González is with the Union of Organizations of the Sierra Juarez of Oaxaca. We didn't know what transgenics were. We had to investigate what transgenics were. And well, you realize that transgenics are not only seeds that have been genetically modified, but that they also had different types of implications. Those that have been mentioned now are primarily the biological, economic, and political implications. But there are also cultural implications. Pero también hay implicaciones de carácter cultural. One tradition that has been gradually disappearing throughout Mexico is the practice of making handmade tortillas. The tortilla is the most common form that corn takes in Mexico. Two domestic agribusiness giants, Maseca and Minsa, dominate the supply of corn flour to the country's tortillerias. Machine-made tortillas are many times cheaper than their handmade counterparts. Most of the women who go door-to-door -door in Oaxaca City with their baskets of tortillas are over the age of 40 and are becoming a less common sight. This resident of the Sierra Juarez Mountains says the vanishing custom isn't just limited to the cities. When the young women find out there's some tortilla machines nearby, they opt to no longer prepare their corn for grinding make the nixtamal mix, make the tortillas by hand, and save themselves that work. But the young people don't realize that that's where we end up eliminating a part of our culture, a custom. The taste and texture of handmade tortillas is significantly different from that of the ones made by machine, and demand is still high enough to fill the local markets with women selling their handcrafted tortillas, blandas and playudas. One of the best places for handmade tortillas in Oaxaca City is Itanoni, a restaurant featuring dishes made from an impressive selection of native corn. The restaurant's owner, Amado Ramirez, says eating here helps to connect urban consumers to the countryside and to the legacy of maize. Los consumidores urbanos realmente Urban consumers really, really don't know about the meaning of maize, even Mexicans. And, well, we're talking about something profound when we talk about maize. For many Mexicans, all corn is equal. 
as if the only differences are in color. Other very obvious things go unrecognized. For example, every maze has a flavor, a texture, a smell, a personality, completely different from the other, depending on the agroecological zone in which it was developed, and the group of people with which it was raised. From this wide diversity of mazes, we have selected a few, like we select our friends. We have corn from sea level up to the mountains, and from this great diversity, we have chosen some of the best, which are best adapted, according to our tastes, to each one of our appetizers. Microbial ecologist Ignacio Chapela says this biodiversity is the result of ancient networks that continue to link humans and maize, with farmers selecting specific plant characteristics for different human needs. The crops that we have are there, the diversity that we have is there, because it's followed the very specific evolutionary pathway that we would never be able to repeat. So in that sense, the loss is so much bigger because it's something that is not, like people think, a renewable resource. You know, plants' genetic diversity is not renewable in that sense. We cannot retrace our steps and think, oh, well, we have storage of seeds somewhere and we'll be able to pull them out. If we're in trouble, we won't. We need to keep that network alive. Despite the economic pressure to abandon traditional farming and migrate, many Oaxacan campesinos continue to cultivate their relationship with maize. To a certain extent, the perceived threat to the maize land races by transgenic corn has sparked a renewed appreciation for the native varieties in southern Mexico. Zeferino Clemente Garcia helped to organize a recent festival for native corn in the Zapotec town of Teltitlan del Valle, about 30 minutes outside of Oaxaca City. Se tiene bien documentado de que aquí, este, por la cueva Aguilana Kids, este, Geoji, también en Zapoteco, Río Salado. It's well documented that the first findings of the most ancient pollen were found here, in the Rio Salado cave and in the White Cave. This makes it all the more significant that the campesinos can no longer produce large quantities of corn due to the lack of government subsidies. But at least we can be self-sufficient and not have to buy genetically modified corn from the United States. NAFTA's policies pit two systems against each other, U.S. subsidized agribusiness and the small-scale, mostly manual farming of the Mexican campesinos. While the Midwest can claim the largest corn production in the world, Dr. Ignacio Chapella is placing his bets for the future of agriculture on small farmers in his native Mexico. If we as humanity stand a chance to deal with ourselves and with that thing that we call biology or nature, it is not by looking up to what's happening in the American Midwest. It is by looking at what's happening here in those very, very marginalized examples of relationships. Um, I think it is from those examples that we hopefully at some point will have to draw to survive in places like the Midwest, in the U.S., you know, when the soil and the water and the, and the human fabric there too has been exhausted. We'll have to come to places like this and learn from here try to remind ourselves how it was that it worked um, to put it back together. The amount of resources and influence that policymakers within the U.S. government have dedicated to biotechnology could give the impression that the future of global food security is a race. But there's an old saying in some of the communities here, which perhaps can explain why local campesinos aren't rushing to jump on the biotechnology bandwagon. 
We're not in a hurry because we have a long way to go. For FSRN, I'm Shannon Young with Vladimir Flores in Oaxaca, Mexico. You've been listening to an FSRN documentary, Corn at the Crossroads, Free Trade, Migration, and Modified Genes in the Cradle of Maize, produced by Shannon Young and Vladimir Flores. Special thanks to producer Tyne Gisi and Antonio Ortiz for technical production. You can get a copy of this or any other FSRN documentary by visiting our website at www.fsrn.org. I'm Ara Bogado. Thanks for listening and join us tomorrow when we return to our regularly scheduled newscast. Yo soy Silvia Redesa. Yo soy Julieta Kuzmin. Aquí con La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, bringing you noticias en español and in English. Música, poesía. Soy Nina Serrano, La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8. My name is Oscar Mania, La Raza Chronicles, here at KPFA 94.1 FM. Yo soy Vanessa Bohm, aquí con La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m., bringing you noticias de la raza community. Yo soy Nicté, Crónicas de la Raza, todos los martes de 7 a 8 p.m. This is Maya. Aquí con la Raza Crónicas, every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., worldwide at kpfa.org, and in the Bay at 94.1. Tune to listener supported radio station 94.1 FM KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, Radio X and KCBS in Seattle, KWMD in Anchorage, Alaska, WRFG in Atlanta, and on the World Wide Web at KPFA.org. Up next on Hard Knock Radio, we revisit an interview with Lettucey about her new CD, Lost and Found. A lot has changed since we spoke with her last. For in 2007, she became the Grammy-nominated Lettucey for Best R&B Album and Best New Artist of 2007. A big accomplishment for the homegirl Lettucey. We're all looking forward to see what happens for her with the Grammys in 2008. I know I'm going to be chilling at the show at Yoshi. She's going to be performing starting January 2nd, going till January 6th. I'm definitely going to be there one of those days. Uh, it's going to be a great show. We're all going to be wishing her well. But before we get into the interview... 
first, here's the KPFA news headlines. Good afternoon, I'm Anthony Fest. In Kenya this morning, rioters set fire to a church, killing up to 50 people in the worst episode yet in four days of unrest following a disputed presidential election. The church burning took place in Eldoret, 185 miles from Nairobi, the capital city. The victims, many of them children, had sought refuge in the church. The violence has now claimed at least 270 lives in what had been one of East Africa's most stable and prosperous nations. Armed militants attacked Nigeria's main oil industry center, Pork Harcourt, today, killing 13 people, this according to a military spokesman. Bands of armed men invaded the city in the morning, attacking two police stations and raiding the lobby of a major hotel. Four police officers, three civilians, and six attackers were killed. The Niger Delta Vigilante Movement claimed responsibility for the attack. A suicide bomber killed 30 people and wounded 38 at a funeral in eastern Baghdad today. Two police sources confirmed the death toll, which would make it the worst bombing in Iraq's capital city since September and one of the worst anywhere in the country for months. A Pakistani senator says that the day she was assassinated, former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto had planned to reveal new evidence alleging the involvement of Pakistan's intelligence agencies in rigging the country's upcoming elections. Bhutto was due to meet visiting Republican Senator Arlen Specter and Democratic Representative Patrick Kennedy to hand over a report charging that the military's Inter-Service Intelligence Agency was planning to fix the polls in favor of incumbent President Pervez Musharraf. Today is New Year's Day, and a long-standing California tradition for the first day of the year is the Rose Parade in Pasadena. Today, the suburban Los Angeles community hosted the event for the 119th time. The Rose Parade features marching bands and elaborate flower-covered floats. Today, there are also political demonstrations. Anti-war protesters turned out to call for an end of the Iraq occupation. Among them was Cindy Sheehan, whose son Casey was killed in Iraq in 2004. Also on hand were advocates of human rights in China, especially calling for an end to the suppression of the Falun Gong spiritual movement. Two days before Iowa voters attend presidential caucuses, Democratic voters in the state report receiving anonymous negative phone calls under the guise of polling. Some calls say Barack Obama's health plan would leave millions uninsured. Others say John Edwards' plans for a troop withdrawal from Iraq were dangerous. Still others say that Hillary Clinton would lead the Democratic Party to defeat in the fall. And the minimum wage in California went up today. Nearly 1.4 million California workers will see their wages rise from $7.50 an hour to $8 an hour. Even after that increase, however, full-time minimum wage workers in the state will still bring in less than the official federal poverty line. I'm Anthony Fest. I'll be back at 6 o'clock with a half-hour holiday edition of the KPFA Evening News. Right now it's 6 minutes past 4. Stay tuned for Heart Knock Radio. I want to thank you for that wonderful uh, news headlines. And I want to go back to Hard Knock Radio. And they have a wonderful feature today featuring the Grammy, Grammy nominated <laughs> best, best R&B album and best new artist of 2007. I may be laughing at myself, but I'm definitely not laughing at our local heavyweight superstar, Lettucey. So let's get back to the program.
right uh, this is hard knock radio and that song there is called joy by the one and only lettucey is off her brand new release lost and found lettucey man welcome welcome back to hard knock radio thank you thank you for having me man man it's, it's been a while it's yeah. been a while you know the last time you were here you're speaking with waylon yeah now, now it's me and you're making fun of me but it's, it's all no, right I'm not. I love it. you're making fun of me but it's <laughs> <laughs> it's okay it's okay <laughs> But we're all excited. We've been waiting for this for quite some time, you know. And I want to give you the opportunity to tell the listeners a bit about Lost and Found. I mean, it's it's been a long time coming, more than 12 years. You've been putting it down club after club, traveling around gorilla style, uh, releasing <laughs> two albums, Soul Singer and Feeling Orange, but sometimes Blue, both independent releases. Now you're on a major record label. Uh, you're signed to the legendary Verb uh, Records, uh, Verb Forecast. Let's start there. Tell us a bit about that. That transition. Wow, you know, the best part about it, I, I'll start with the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about it is they haven't touched me creatively. They've let me be myself and continue to, you know, uh, create the kind of music that I want to. I have to feel it in order for it to come about. So that's the best part. They've let me have creative control. You know, I'm executive producer on my own record still, even though I'm signing a major. Artists don't get that kind of stuff on their first outing. So they know that I've been around doing my own thing. So that's been really cool. And I'm on the radio more than I was with my previous recording. So, I mean, those are all great blessings. I mean, people don't just get that coming in. Um, the other, the hardest part is just having a third party in there to, well, I think that maybe <laughs> you, know I mean? you should do this. No, no, no. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's still, th- those are the hardest parts is, is that, and just, you know, you have your vision of how things should run as an artist always. And, and my team are used to the grassroots kind of vibe because I have grassroots folks that have been from the ground up around me now and they know man you need to have that video before you need to have the duh because we're we're late on a lot of stuff that I'm not really happy with but you know we're catching up and 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 it's new for them you have to I have to be 
considerate of the fact that it's new for Verb. I'm a different kind of artist. They never had something like me over there that can do both worlds of what they're used to and be where I am. Let's talk a bit about that. Verb is, you know, for people that don't know about Verb, it's more of that classic sound, classic jazz. That's mm-hmm. their history. And now it seems like they're moving. They're, there's an attempt to broaden their market, right? So mm-hmm. you have Verb Forecast signing, you know, musical groups or acts like, uh, say, Brazilian Girls or Jamie Cullum. Mm-hmm. Now it's you. Mm-hmm. Of course, you could assign to any major record label, but it was something about Verb. Do you see your, was that a goal? Do you see yourself being part of that new history? Definitely. Definitely. I, it, you know, I don't know what the future holds for myself being with Verve or Verve having me, whatever. Um, but I do know being there, I could grow into something even more. I've already touched on their jazz being on We All Love Ella, being on that CD, doing the jazz thing. And I've also done, you know, the their uh, release with the Forever Far Always for Luther project. I mean, there's places I can grow there into doing jazz and also helping them to broaden an audience that they probably have never had before and uh, different ways of doing uh, music a little bit. And they have a whole new team now, so things are different. Uh, the the mus- major label industry is changing a lot, so I expect them to change. Right. And, yeah. I, and I love the fact that you're part of this new history mm-hmm. that they're creating. But then the other thing is you mentioned that, you know, being a new artist on a major, you're able to maintain your creative control, and mm-hmm. now you're the also the executive producer on the album. Most new artists don't mm-hmm. get that. Yeah. Why do you think you were able to be able to to, to make that happen for yourself? Well, Is it based on you being you know around and being really successful as well? Yeah. <laughs> if, I have, if I didn't have my previous recordings, if I didn't have my history, my past, I would not have what I have in the future, and that's no doubt. Without all the folk. And all the people before that helped me, you know, get to where I am, I would not have what I have stepping into it. And and neither, I wouldn't have myself to go, okay, I'm not moving until everything feels good. I'm not stepping into this until it feels good. That's why it took me a year and a half. Oh, that don't feel good. <laughs> until y'all make it feel good, then I ain't coming on in. <laughs> but they worked it out when Ron Goldstein was there. He really um, made it happen for me. I mean, he opened the door so I can see what Oz was all about. And come to find out, all the same people were over there in Oz but couldn't hook me up because I had to sign my deal. Heller, but we not going to talk about that. <laughs> we are speaking with Lettuce the Hero on Hard Knock Radio. And right now, I think it's only right that we play a, a new track off of the album uh, titled best friend is off of the new album lost and found hard knock radio will be right back what y'all trying to do
Legacy is in the building, and that song is Best Friend off of the brand new album Lost and Found. As I've mentioned before, it's in stores. Uh, go pick that up. If, if, if you're feeling that track, I think people should go pick that up. Me too. Uh, yeah. uh, but, but Lip, <laughs> I really like that track, first and foremost. I like the track. I what? love the album. You I, do? I, I, oh my God. She said it on, <laughs> on Hardbox. She likes the record. Anita, you. <laughs> I am so happy about that. Okay. I didn't care about Billboard, New York Times, but it didn't like clowning? my record. Why is she clowning? Why is she clowning? Right? Why? Why is she clowning? No, no, for real. Seriously, you know how I am yeah. when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one album that I've been able to listen track after track and not skip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know how? You yeah, know, you'll I figure, skip. I figure if, if you'll you, skip. It. <laughs> If you have to skip a song, you know, I figure, you know, mostly, you know, a CD costs about, what, $15 now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You should be able to at least walk away with six, seven, six, eight. You know? You know, yeah. you know, that's me compromising. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive. $15 you know, oh, that's a lot of money. But, to not, but this is a kind of CD where you can enjoy in your car mm. a nice day at home. You know, with with friends, families, and loved ones. Oh, that's wow. special someone. So I really, really, I'm just not saying it. I, you know, I'm I'm really proud of this. Is uh, I think I'm your best. Start crying. This is your best. <laughs> look at her. This is your best work to date. 
And I will say that. And I will go on record saying that. Tell us a little about the album and the people that you work with in creating this wonderful music. You know what the best part about this record? Well, there's a whole bunch of best parts. But this, the the missing pieces, you know, Mm. that's why it's titled Lost and Found. Uh, Everything came naturally. Um, nothing was planned out. Nothing was, ooh, we're going to make a record like this. None of that. Before Verb even got involved, I had already started. So Rex Rideout did my sensitivity and asked me to perform with it. And um, when he called and said, come on, Led, you got to do this. I would love for you to be a part of it. That pulled me back into being a part of the music industry. The hardest part was deciding, man, should I stay? Should I go? What should I do uh, staying in this business? And without him telling me stay in the business and let, let's just write, just write right now. Don't think about business. Don't think about money. Just when you're here in town, we're just going to write. And we, the first song was Think of You that I ever wrote for this record. And, and I worked with him. And when we wor- did Think of You, that was the best beginning. And I knew it would be a different record. And then I worked with uh, Mano Haynes, who I heard about. He's from the Bay Area. And I heard about his name for years in the musician scene. He came about by just coming to a show. And I said, hey, you're the infamous Mano. And we hung out and talked for four hours and talked about music and business and being a creative person and how to deal with the pressures of being on it every time. So and then he said, just come and hang out. and We write. That's why Best Friend came out. The first song was Today and then Best Friend and then uh, Someday. And then I worked with... uh, Lorenzo Johnson, who's a new producer in D.C., and I met him at a cookout at <laughs> a barbecue. And I said, oh, you're a writer, blah, blah, blah. We hung out, and he had all these tracks just sitting around, and I said, well, let's just write something. And I wrote 12 songs with him, and we recorded everything in two days. And I said, ooh, that one has to go on my record. And I pretty much did that with everybody. Jamie Jazz was the last producer I worked with. He works with Rasan Patterson and... Um, a lot of other other Shawnees. He's worked with a lot of people. And I just, I saw him. I said, let's hang out and hook up. We wrote two songs and I picked the one with him. And then I had to have uh, Sundra Manning. Uh, you, you, you can't move forward in your future without acknowledging the past. And we have a history together. So I had to have her on the record. And the record company wasn't really feeling a song. I didn't care. I wanted to have something with her on the record. And Sandra Manny is, is is responsible is your business partner from the La two Sun pa- music, and she and I co wrote and produced the uh, previous recordings, and she was there distributing the records with UPS and post office all the time with me. You know what I mean? So I couldn't move forward without having her involved. So all the producers came naturally. Everything had to come in this uh, manner. It took three years to make this record. Because, again, I had a whole bunch of stuff going on that I had to deal with. But I'm happy those producers came to me and I came to them. It, it, you hear it. Right. You like it. So I'm, I'm doing something right. Well, Leslie, when you set out to produce Lost and Found, this new album, what did you have in mind? And do you believe that you accomplished that goal with the finished product? I think, um, I, nothing. like I said, nothing was planned. But what I did want was to continue with what I've always started with in the recording uh, business is to make timeless pieces that you put on five years, 10 years, 30 years from now and go, mm, I still like this this record, the whole thing from cover to cover. I didn't want people to skip over or maybe they go back and go, mm, 
I forgot about this song. I, I That was a time I wouldn't listen to this song, and now I need this song right now. I want it to be little pieces of... Your, like your your good jewelry that you pull out <laughs> for a special occasion or for any occasion just because it made you feel good. That's how I wanted my records. And that's what I, my primary goal was for people to go from beginning to end. Ah, you know, and I've been getting that compliment. And I don't read reviews because it freaks me out. I'll look at the pictures, but I don't want to <laughs> know if it's good or bad. I just want to know that when I see people, my emotions reflected when I wrote it in them and they looking at me and going, oh, my God, I need it. I'm still doing my job. When people don't say nothing to you, hey, all right, I don't really like that. Then I'm worried. Right, right. And at the shows, I'm worried every show that people won't come. So with this record, that's what I mainly wanted. Well, I wanted that. Even at this part in the game, you you still worried. You still think oh, that? Oh, yeah. Mm. I'm always be had that independent thought process of <laughs> this could be over anytime. <laughs> I think definitely with this new album, your future is bright and you will be around for many many years. Twelve more plus and plus, <laughs> right? Times times two, you know. Uh, but but going back to this new album, Lost and Found. Uh, for me, listening to it, and, and this has been. One of my critiques when you've allowed me to hear mm -hmm. your music before in the past. <laughs> I'm has, scared giving you this record. I just <laughs> want you to know. <laughs> I've I've listened to albums before, and, and my critique has always been about the the wholeness of it, the production aspect of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it could be meteor or certain things should be here, there, and and I think with this album, you've been able to accomplish that. I mean, you mentioned Rex and other producers that you work with, and some of them have this gospel background, and they've won Grammys. Talk about you pulling together that team to really create a, a well-rounded album around the content, but also the quality of the sound. Talk about that a bit. Well, it started with the, it has to start with the quality of the person, no matter what. I mean, the, I can look at a producer and look at his work. Rex Rideout, let's use him as an example. The music he's worked with has all been predominantly smooth jazz. Do you know how many people told me, why are you working with Rex Rideout? He's going to smooth your stuff out. I'm like, y'all don't know the side of Rex that I know. I don't know who y'all talk about, but Rex is funky. And Rex, he ghetto. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're only seeing one side of a person. Mano, he does a lot of church stuff. You would ne never, you know, I, I would, I, I mean, I don't know. People just assume he's one way. Um, well, not most people, but if you look at his, his body of work, you would say, oh, he's just the gospel and I had a lot of people critique, oh, it sounds like gospel. Well, you know what? It's lost and found. I'm sitting on a church pew, standing by a church pew. It works. And I need him on this. I had, you don't know how many people was against me with the producers that I had on my record. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And when they heard it, they went, oh, let now, me shut up. Right. You get what I mean? But I had to stand by it because I believed in the person. I, I, they were there from the ground up where I was about to quit and lifted me. Same with Lorenzo. Nobody got get to know you. And when and, and they're like, who is this Lorenzo cat? Why are you using this person? We never heard him. He didn't do anything with on, on anybody's record. So I like this track. I like what I'm writing on it. I sound good. He sound good. It sound good. <laughs> Put it on the record. You know what I mean? I'm not saying the label felt that way. I'm saying other opinions of people. Right. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what I was doing. So And everything came naturally. So I knew it was right. My feeling was right about them. You know, that's why I fought for Upside Down to be on the record. Do you think that 
part of people questioning your your vision was also connected to you being a woman in that ooh, position. Oh, 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 Did I hit something oh, right there? Come on now. I'm going to join your church on that one. <laughs> Woo, can I be the deacon and the choir? Hallelujah. Wow. Get down. <laughs> that is so true. It, it's harder. N- number one, I look young. I look like I'm stupid. As far as, you know, that's just the artist. When you get that artist thing attached to you, then they think you're silly. But you got to remember, I ran a company. Or stupid if you're cute. Yeah, if you're cute. Exactly. And, okay, I'm cute. But <laughs> <laughs> but but then, in, in your, you know, uh, African-American woman, I'm sorry. It's just, if you act out and, and out of your face, meaning, excuse me, you know, if you have to act up a little bit to get your point across then all of a sudden you have a branded thing on you. So I've always been professional as much as possible and went to the people I need to talk to instead of the people around the people. Because people, everyone's ego and everyone's job is dependent on my record right now. Everyone is building a career off of this. Everybody. Because everybody I'm around that, that that are really close to me are great people. And I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying everyone is this is new for everyone, you know, so it's when it's new, you have everybody building off of it and everybody has an opinion about something. But I really I have as a woman, I've had to stand strong. And also I've been growing up this whole time since Soul Singer growing up, uh, growing up is hard. You know, now I'm a, I feel like I'm a grown woman because I know what I want. But it took me a long time to get to the point where I'm in alignment. And it all starts with having faith. You know you're right. It feels right. Trust it. If your stomach and your body and everything is moving to where it's flowing for you, don't second guess it. Right. You know, sometimes we second guess. Oh, just because it's going good, I think it needs to go here. <laughs> and then you made mistakes. Instead of trusting the feeling and not listening to other people, listen to yourself. Be centered and find that out, figure it out. I know I'm right half of the time, but then I try to people please and then I get in trouble. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's wrong. That's where I found where my mistakes are. And I'm still working on it. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I feel more grown as a woman going through this process in the past since 2004 up to now. Be wanting to quit, stay, go, finding my dad. I mean, this record is an embodiment of all the different versions of love that I've been begging for. Mm. Acceptance from my music career, acceptance as a as a woman with nappy hair and dark skin in the industry from a musical aspect. And then from a personal aspect, wanting to feel loved and supported and given the kind of love I deserve, thinking I had that and didn't have that. And afraid to leap and let it go. You get what I mean? Afraid of letting that go. And then spiritually, finding out where am I, where do I belong? What am I doing? You know, and now I'm in alignment with everything. First spiritually, and then everything started coming together. And there were all the pieces were in front of me, but I couldn't see them because I had my big old ego in the way, thinking money would answer all my problems. And that that is not the answer. Otherwise, don't do it. You know, stay, get out then. If you want to get paid and that's all you're looking at, not looking at all the work you've done and being appreciative of that. Right. Man. Well, just listening to you speak right now, I think this album is more fitting. The title of the album is more fitting, listening to all that you've said, because mm-hmm. it is it has been a maturing process. 
and you have grown tremendously and you've been able to be steadfast mm-hmm. in your decision to create something that represents you fully as, as a woman and as an artist, which is very, very important. Again, for people who are just tuning in right now, uh, let us see. Young is in the building. She's in the building with the brand new album, Lost and Found. There's so much uh we we can talk about which we will which we will because you know it's all it's your day it's about you right now the the world is yours Uh, uh, but uh. but right now (laughs) let's go to another track off of the album the song is think of you it's one of my most favorite songs off of the album you know this you know this one of my most favorite songs off of the album lost and found this is hard knock radio we'll be right back
We are back. As I said before, Let Us See is in the building. Hard Knock Radio. I'm Anita Johnson. Let. <laughs> what were you trying to do? Were you trying to hurt folks with this, with uh, this track right uh, here? Look at you. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Something different? Yes. Something new? Yes. Something that people, your 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 fan base may not be used to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's, what's going on with that? What's, what's going on with this track? Think of you. you One of my what? most favorite tracks. You like Think yeah, yeah. of You? Well, when I wrote that, like I said, that was the first song. That was the introduction to Lost and Found. I knew whatever was going to happen at this point was going to be something different because the way it came about. And uh, Rex and I wrote that in the studio, and it was one take. I did it in one take. Did the backs in 15 minutes in one take. I was in a zone. And I knew everything I wanted for it. He knew everything that could add more and I had to have live drums. And I, I just wanted a different vibe. I wanted people to know that I'm not just one way, you know. And I think uh, this record is to reach out into a different audience, not just the one I already have. Yeah. You like that, huh? I, 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 definitely. And one thing that uh, surprised me most is that you try things differently on this album that I hadn't seen you try before. See, you don't think I'll be listening to you. <laughs> That's what it is. You're like, oh, she listened. She heard what I had to say all them years. She didn't heard me. But I want to know what, where were you at? You mentioned that the, the growth and the maturity, did all that open you up to kind of like try new things and not be so concerned how people might, you know, perceive you trying these new things? I mean, you scratching mm-hmm. and just trying these different things and just, you know, exploring that as an artist. Talk a bit about that. I was feeding off of the energy of feeling like, wow, I can't, I do have a voice of my own by myself with nothing attached to it. No other uh, person in the room because I was so used to having Sundra there. So that was hard to get used to when you're used to having a certain way of creating music. And, and you know, I forgot that long time ago, I was by myself. <laughs> I was by myself before I recorded records hello and and i had to come back full circle with myself that was like wow okay and then rex had never done this kind of vibe before so i was we were feeding off of each other um he was like "Ooh, you know i never thought to do something like this so it was and then the lyrics came so naturally and i had to give homage to god because i couldn't believe i was still alive i was still creating and i was still writing something was coming out and I had a voice that I had never heard. I was singing higher. I was singing louder and clearer and calmer. I didn't have to scream it out. It felt good, you know. So on this song, I really, I just loved, I, I started listening to a lot of Sade, a lot of Lauryn Hill, a lot of um, Rasta music, you know, around the house. Every My listening things had changed So this during this time of this song because uh, I, I just wanted something different. And I always did it live. But to have it on on the CD was a blessing. Talk about the the lyrics itself. I mean, I'm amazed, but you never cease to amaze me. Uh, the fact that you did this in one take and it was the first song that you created for the album. Um, you know, and and I've I've heard it progress to where it is now. It's just amazing, you know. And I say amazing because for me, it's just something different from what I'm used to. And I think that's what has impressed me most about this album. And I think that's why it's one of the best albums, you know, to date. Even though many times, you know, they say with artists, you have a lifetime to create your first album and your first album would be Soul Singer. But I think in many ways, this is you being 
a woman on your own saying, you know what, I know where I'm at and what I want and let me do it. And I think you've been able to accomplish that with this album. But you're also your lyrics have improved. You're you're a better writer now. You know, you know what you want with the sound. Mm -hmm. But I think your lyrics, you're more comfortable and you're more at ease to say what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Wow, that's amazing, because I always feel like I was <laughs> before. But I guess what you're, I think, I think what you're saying is that it's, you've gotten deeper. You've you've gone deeper instead of just simmering on the surface of the basics. Aside from songs like Coffee and Papa, though, I felt those were, I was really telling all of my teeth. But I get what you're saying for the general yeah. to get. Um, man... The lyrics on this song is a, you know, I don't want to mess people things up because it can mean both meanings. It can be about someone. But really, for me, when I wrote it, it was about God. And that's why the the whole packaging of the record, the vibe of the record, Lost and Found, the title, it has a spiritual content to it. Um, I'm, I really, truly love God. I love, love him, her, whatever you want to call it. But for me, I love God. And I had to give homage and tribute to God before I finished the rest of my record. I needed it was a great opener for me. And the response to the song, the as as the world turns and the moon fades is so poetic. And um and I I just love that I it came out naturally. I didn't think about it. I didn't have a thought and said I'm going to write this to this. It was I was standing in the studio going brr, 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 in the booth I just finished all my backs. I didn't know what I was going to sing. Rex was like, what you going to do next? Hold on. Okay, I'm ready. And he heard it was like, dang, <laughs> this is hot. You know, he couldn't believe, wow, Led, this is some, your voice is different. Your vibe is different. And I was in a con looking for a peaceful place. And I was looking for that. And I had to say, God, can you give me a peaceful place? Because when I think of you, I feel good. Give me that. And that's all I could think of when I heard it back at myself yes i was we're looking for peace right well i think to clarify what what i i meant i mean your writing ability has always been strong that's that's not something that people can doubt or debate uh you know especially when you have filling orange but sometimes blue on amazon going for 119 dollars <laughs> and then being on ebay I, I last i heard uh there was someone trying to sell it for 240 dollars because that's one of the most hardest albums to get <laughs> so i think with that that states that you know your writing ability <laughs> is on point um, but okay but 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 i think for me it's that as you've mentioned you are free to just let it flow yeah and no. just let it there's the fluidity and no, everything right. that, that, you, that right. you that you put down and i think too uh and i'm going to ask this question uh, one thing that I think that people don't know about you is that you're a hopeless romantic. Oh, Lord. And the love <laughs> that is in this album <laughs> made me go, hmm. Oh, whatever. How did she, she was able to coin that exactly right at that moment. So for me, that's, I'm like, wow, she just let it, you just put no, it out no, there. No, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. Because I do, I do the other records, I was a little more, let me think about it first. You're How not, much do I want them to know? Because okay. <laughs> it's scary, you're, you're putting so much out there, you know. And, and this record, I had to, it was like, that's why everybody's going, ah, I love it, you know, because I had to. It's like each year I'm going through some more stuff. And, yes, I am a hopeless romantic. It's it's sad, but it's true. <laughs>
It, everyone is, though. Everyone right. wants is looking for love. Yeah. Everybody wants to be loved. When they're angry, they want to be loved. When okay. they need something, they want love. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I once had an ex-boyfriend tell me, he was a boyfriend at the time, and you know, I probably should be upset with what he said, but, you know, there, like you said, there is some truth to it. I remember he told me once that uh, I'm in love with being in love. And I think, <laughs> anyway, we we all share yeah, that, like, you know. Yeah, come on, you know, man. Especially if it's good. What's his name? Especially if it's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, again, Let Us See is in the building. This is Hard Knock Radio. I'm Anita Johnson. We're talking about the brand new album. The CD is titled Lost and Found. If you've been liking what you've been hearing, the conversation, this is definitely an album that you want to get. Before I mention that, uh, you know, you can listen at home, you can listen in your car. I think... When one hears your voice, you have the supple and this smooth and mature sound. You know, you have jazz. You have these influences of, you know, R&B and blues. And, uh, you know, some might say reminiscent of maybe Anita Baker. But I would say, you know, you think of a Shaka Khan or if you, you know, I think your performance and what you give is that of a Patti LaBelle. But then also you have, you know, people like Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughn. And there's so much, you know, your own your own person. But, you know, when you think about the the shoulders that you stand upon, Mm. you know, and how you got here, I think there's stuff that there's a residue remnants of of these greats talk a bit about your influences without all of those people you said those are great influences without the them coming forward before me i couldn't you're right i could not have what i have right now um i listen to a lot of uh of the older folk i really really truly do uh abby lincoln is one of my favorite a turtle's dream is my favorite record till whenever and i like kenny Loggins' leap of faith i love um Sarah Vaughn, anything Sarah Vaughn, anything Ella. Um, Miles Davis is one of my favorite performers. Uh, eclectic. He he would switch up. I wish he was around now so he and I can do something together because I know he would be open to it and he would want jazz to stretch out more. I think mm. we do too many tribute records, and I'm on one. And I, I'm not dogging it. I, say, I think it's beautiful. But I would, really would like people to move things and stretch the music a little more. And I think we're doing that. But also the jazz purist is hard to be open. And I think if Miles was around, if he said, let's change it, it would change. You know, if, if more mm, greats like that was around, they would accept him no matter what he does. Oh, that's Miles. But why can't we do that now knowing that the younger folk, we've studied and listened and learned from the older folk, how come we can't get the lift? A lot of my influences are the the greats from Bird. I love Tribe Called Quest. You know, I love, that's my favorite hip-hop group of all time, uh, Tribe Called Quest, because they uh, mixed it up with jazz and hip-hop. And I, I don't know, I just love all kinds of music. A lot of R&B, Tower Power, Rufus, Shaka Khan, blah, blah, blah. If these people were alive today, what would you ask what type of, you know, what would you ask them in regards to advice, especially you embarking upon this journey right now? Well, I would ask them, you know, what is it like being, how do you stay being vulnerable in a male-dominant world? How do you keep your power without losing your power, without cutting back your class? Because mm. you're so classy. How do you stay so classy and vulnerable, but also powerful at the same time? I haven't mastered that yet. I, I'm getting there, but I haven't mastered it in a cool breeze like you do. What mm. do you, you? Not only do you wear the heels and you look good and you sound good, but we never see you out of your face. <laughs> not that I do, 
But I'm saying, how do you keep that going the whole entire time? You know, the only one person that I can really think who's been able to master that, who's still living or who's still among us would be Nancy mm. Wilson. Yeah, but she means business. If you ever sit down and talk with her, she don't play. <laughs> no, honey, I need to have da-da-da-da-da, and you need to cover up. How come you don't cover up enough? <laughs> Look at all this stuff coming out. <laughs> she don't play. Wow. So you know she means business. And I always want to ask her, too, but we're running. We're busy. But, yeah, if Sarah and, and Ella was around. And, and then there's so much competition back then. They had, like, Ella and Sarah and Billy. Really? Everybody was doing their thing, but they could sit down and have a drink. Absolutely. Sit down and smoke. Girl, you know, where you been? And still respect each other. Right. We don't have that. Right. We're ready. Each of us are always putting each other down. There's only a few singers that I know, and Shaka Khan is one of them, that's so humble and not tripping off and not intimidated by anybody in their craft. She appreciates them for who they are. I love that. And she's not fake. Not fake at all. I love that. And and maybe it's because she hung out with them, with Sarah and Ella. She was the last to mm -hmm. be amongst the last of the greats. And that's why you have to give honor to her. Because she's Shaka. And she elevated music. Her and Aretha. Mainly, I mean, without Aretha, right. we wouldn't have Shaka. Ooh. So, Ariri, I would love to sit and eat a meal with her. I don't, I don't do meat anymore, but I would still eat. Be, I'll be there eating chicken with her. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe I'm with Aretha Franklin. Give me that chicken. <laughs> I would envy that conversation. Oh, I man. would envy that moment. You know? You know, absolutely, absolutely. I think there's, you know, you speak of the last of the greats. I think you're in a generation and, you know, the, the, some of the ones that you mentioned, like Chaka Khan and Aretha, that the lineage of that is just connected to that. I think you're in that generation that's coming, that's, that's here, that's going to be part of that. And, and 20 years from now, you know, you'll have people, the new uh, singer that I'll be interviewing will be saying, you know, you know, let us see. You know, <laughs> I would like to sit down and eat chicken with lettuce. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. As we begin to uh, close and, and, and wrap up this conversation, I wanted to give the listeners, you know, you're, you're, you're an Oakland homegirl. Who's oh, done? God. Who's done well for herself? Wow. You know, originally your roots is in Louisiana, New Orleans, New Orleans, mm -hmm. New Orleans. But this is home for yes. you. Mm -hmm. I want to leave the listeners with something that they don't know about you. you know, they know that you're Oakland homegirl, and a lot of people already know stuff about uh -oh. lead. But what's the one thing that listeners, that your fans, that you think that they don't know, that they don't know about Lettucey, that they would be surprised to know? That I'm extremely sensitive, and I'm af afraid of messing up <laughs> big time. I'm not as strong as I come off to be. I can be a little... I don't know about that. I think you're pretty strong. Well, <laughs> I am, but I... But to, it's she, just, she's not a person now. <laughs> no. I'm, <laughs> I'm strong, but I am very, very, very shy. Extremely shy. Um, I'm a nerd, and, and I, I hide out. I'm a hider. I'm not a flaunter. I don't... You'll never see me flaunting anything that I have. You'll look at me and go, why? Because you don't dress it up a little in public you know you'll never see me do something like flaunt who i am and have big bodyguards around i'm just extremely personal and shy yeah it is odd but it's true and i'm pair inside there's a war going on did i do the right things <laughs> you know what i mean but every artist is and I think one thing that I think listeners already know or fans already know is that she's really sweet and she's really giving. Aww. So, you know, I want to put one thing on top of that, you know, and, and, and the hopeless romantic, we already discussed that, but I think that's one thing that people oh, don't know. Oh, where's the violin? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, 
Karnak Radio. The album is titled Lost and Found. You've heard so much today from the album. Again, we're really hoping that uh, listeners have appreciated the conversation, discussion that we've had about the album, about Legacy. You know, hopefully folks were able to learn some things that uh, they didn't know about this young woman. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. She's been putting it down, and the music is phenomenal. Uh, again, Lost and Found by the one and only Legacy. So if people want to get the album, how can they go about uh, picking up a copy of the CD, Lost and Found? Well, they can get it online at iTunes. Um, they can also get it at Amazon.com, CD Baby, CD Universe, all the different places online. And if they want to keep in touch with me, I'm always on my message board. You can reach my message board through Lettucey.com and also Lettucey on MySpace. So there's different ways and verbs. You can get it on Verb Music Group's uh, website. And if people haven't checked out Lettucey's new website <laughs> or her MySpace account, I don't know why not. I'm just, okay, I'm, I'm not going to take too much time. It looks nice. You like it? It looks nice. Mm, it, see? She, 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 she big time now. She ain't said that in this conversation today, but she doing big things. Aw, I'm just working thing. it out, man. And you can get, you know, I can't believe I'm on OK Player. Do you know how excited I am about Featured that? Featured artist on OK Hello? Player. You know Come what I'm on, Anita. Come I'm going to pass out. You're doing big things. That is so hot. She's doing big things. She got this new look. You know what I'm saying? She got a new designer. She got the clothes. She got the look. You know what I'm saying? She definitely, you always, you, you, the, the sound, you all on point. She on point. She on point. So, again, lost and found. You can pick it up the way in what she said, but then you can also pick it up at your local stores. You can get one for your mom, one for your pops, we'll you. yourself, the car. You know what I'm saying? Have fun with it. Lost and found. Let us see. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. All right. We're going to go out with one more track off the album Lost and Found titled All Right we'll be right back But it's alright Having money 
we came to the end of an amazing program by Hard Knock. They kind of outdid themselves today, featuring the Grammy nominated for Best Rhythm and Blues Album and Best Artist of the Year of 2007, Lettucey, who's also going to be appearing at uh, Yoshi's and Jack London Square tonight through Sunday the 6th. So if you want to get some more of Lettucey and see her in living color, you could check that one out. And uh, with that, I want to let you know you're listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in San Francisco. Oh, God, what am I talking about? I'm giving you the wrong station. Forgive me for that. KFCF is right in Fresno. And we're on the web, www.kpfa.org. And it's time for Flashpoints. Flashpoints. We take a look back at our top stories in part two of our New Year's special featuring the best of Flashpoints of 2007. We'll talk about a visit to a former Palestinian children's prison in the occupied.